Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh my goodness, hello and welcome to another edition of the Indie Football Podcast. I am Ed Malian and my triumphant return comes just in time to help break down another momentous week of Premier League action. Uh, we'll be going in depth on Pep Guardiola and Manchester City today, fresh off the back of a dominant win over defending champions Chelsea on Saturday evening. And we will also discuss a little of what went on in Spain this weekend with Barcelona being forced to play behind closed doors amid dreadful scenes across Catalonia. And I say we because I am, of course, not sat alone in this studio. That's just what I do at weekends. So allow me to introduce you to our chief football writer, never knowingly on time, but nonetheless present. It is Miguel Delaney. Hello. I was on time today. Uh, one minute late. Good. And of course, the hype man with a hyphen is Jack Pitbrook. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, where better to start, I guess, than the big one, because uh, you were both there. Thank you for coughing, Miguel. Uh, a game utterly dominated by Manchester City, but won only by a single goal, which I guess is kind of the difference between the sterile domination you get criticised mm. for and basically the, the best of Guardiola ball, which at times this felt like, Miguel. Yeah, um, I think what's worrying for the Premier League actually is they did look several levels above the champions. Now, I think I mean, you're slightly reticent to get too, to run too far away with the results because they looked so good at this point last season and it was just now when they started to drop off. But I do feel it's going to be completely different this year. I mean, they just look much more of a team. And even when they were good at the start of last season, they were still kind of coughing up chances. They were still kind of just because the players didn't really understand the Guardiola system as much, there were suddenly these massive gaps would appear, particularly in the defence, whereas he made such a point after the game of saying, we're playing this way, but we're not giving away chances. We're not, we, we, we've had another clean sheet. And I think they are, they've, they've, there's been almost a bit of a leap in the way they play. Jack? Yeah, that was that was what really stood out for me was, I think, the control they had in the second half, the how unthreatened they were defensively. Like, even... I mean, to, to, to take a game from this time last year when they won 2-1 mm. at Old Trafford, they dominated the first half, and then the second half, they conceded well, a few chances. Yeah, I, he said that as well. He said uh, last season, one of the poor close to this would have been the first 45 minutes at Old Trafford. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, this was a complete game. Whereas this time, I thought that I was, I was really, really surprised watching it by how little threat Chelsea had in the second half. So much so that Miguel and I both said the same thing to each other, which is that it was it looked as if Chelsea had ten men. Yeah, like there were gaps everywhere. They couldn't get hold of the ball. They couldn't really. I mean, all they had they put in a few crosses from the right, which of course now that City have a good keeper in Edison, mm. they were That's never really particularly worried by. And it was just it was really surprising because always with you know, in a lot of these big games with City, what we've seen in the last few years, sorry, in the last year or two, is that it they will always concede one or two really big chances and generally from those chances they would concede. That's why, you know, they played fairly well but lost at Chelsea last year, lost at Tottenham, yeah. lost at Anfield, drew at Arsenal. But Whereas this time, they weren't, I mean, they didn't create, they didn't, sorry, they didn't concede big or small chances. Yeah. They were basically impermeable, which says a lot about how, how much control they had over the game. Also from a macro view, in that point, um, another difference uh, with this, I thought, was that last season, anytime City seemed to be building up a little bit of momentum, they play a big game 
and they actually they did have a bit of a setback. And they, 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 I think they were, particularly in the second half of last season, Guardiola got quite frustrated. At, whereas this time, it was a, it was a momentum propelling victory. So it did make a difference in that way too. Yeah, I think it'll be really influential in the <coughs> sense that one thing that Pep has said repeatedly is that he didn't think last year that City had the mentality to go and control those big games in the way that he wanted them to do. Mm. And that was particularly evident in the second half of the season where they had that terrible run of really big games in a row, like losing at Chelsea, drawing yeah. at Arsenal, losing FA Cup semi-final, going out to Monaco. The two all against Spurs at home as well. Yeah. yeah, and all those games suggested that he didn't think the team were didn't, couldn't quite play with the conviction that he demanded of them. Whereas I think that this game could prove to be transformative. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to say that the day, two or days after a big game, but it could change how confident the squad is in playing that way in the biggest matches and, and also, I mean beyond all that as well they did that and performed to that level without arguably the club's greatest ever player on the pitch <laughs> I mean Aguero right, right but, let, but let's take it down a notch slightly because uh, you were at City on Tuesday Jack uh, and they beat Shakhtar at home Shakhtar were better than we expected but nonetheless they were, it was a home game on Tuesday night on Wednesday night Chelsea had an away game against one of the best teams in Europe uh let's go Madrid and I was in the press conference after that game first thing he, he said like they asked him about you know mm. you've just beaten Atletico it's a, it's a brilliant away performance yeah, I'm sure you all saw it the first thing he says is right and now we have to play on Saturday we're not going to get home till 4am on the Thursday we have one game we have one day to prepare for the biggest one of the biggest Premier League games of our season and given that you know they had to put a lot of preparation in specifically for Atletico because of the importance of that match within their group I I I think the City performance was unbelievable. I thought they were dominant. And, and when you're watching it, it was almost like a maroon blanket at times. The way they, they, sw- mm. they swarmed all over them and pressed them and pinned them back. That is exactly, I thought, what, what Pep's teams want, which we haven't necessarily seen that often from them, especially against good teams. Against poor teams, fine, but against a good team like this. But it's just so hard for Chelsea to be at their best when they've, you know, they've returned from Madrid on Thursday early in the hours. Yeah, that's one of the things I worry about for Chelsea this season is that Conte, while he, you know, he's won four league titles in four seasons managing mm-hmm. top clubs, he's not really a man who's experienced in competing on multiple fronts. Like he's not, he's never won a, he, he, he's, he's yeah. never won a cup competition as a manager. He's all about that kind of. Uh, and, and his longest run to the Champions League with Juventus was the quarters in 2013, was it? Against yeah. Bayern, yeah. Like we should he, probably add as well though. One of the big issues with Chelsea then, if you're trying to do this, play Wednesday, Saturday, mm. Wednesday, Sunday, Tuesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, is you need a deep squad. Yeah. And yeah. Chelsea did let him down this summer because he made a big thing about needing all these extra players. And at the end of the day, he didn't get those those players he wanted. He didn't get the depth he wanted. He, he, they need another striker. They need another wing back, I'd say, because they've really only got three. Uh, I mean, I mean midfield, he's pretty, midfield and defence, he's probably quite well stocked now, you'd say. But and I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see, okay, for these Champions League games, you, maybe they toss in what some of the kids they've got, because we've seen how good these kids can well, be. Well, Christians is a step up, to be fair. Yeah, and I bet he's spent two years on loan at a Champions League club. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, you know, the, the other kids, like even, uh, I mean, Ruben Loftus-Cheek or, or Nathaniel Chalaber, these guys have, well, have looked, they, they are Premier League quality players, we've seen that. So why couldn't they play on on the Saturday? Funny on the enough, I, I was texting someone who works a lot in the Northwest football, and is uh, absolutely loves Dominic Solanke. And he was texting me during the Liverpool game. I said Liverpool should bring him on. He'd, he'd, break, he'd break through. He'd, he'd get the goals. But he also said that it is amazing actually because now with Costa gone, with Morata suffering this injury, Solanke could actually be perfect for Chelsea right now. That perfect player to okay, he's not old enough for senior enough yet to kind of you know 
play every week. Yeah, yeah, but it would be perfect to step in for, Mor- for Morata. Or Izzy Brown started for Brighton uh, this weekend. And I, I just think that's the thing, um, you know, Conte was complaining about it, but the fact is that I guess, you know, it's another message from him to, to the board in, in many ways is that they don't have the depth to do this and they were so comprehensively outplayed by City. And, and what it's just, just for me, I would have liked to have seen that game in a more fair setting almost because City was so good and so impressive. I'd like to be able to take that at face value rather than having to kind of slightly mitigate that performance. Well, to be fair, Guardiola did say after the game, like next week or tomorrow it'll be us in the same situation. And I think you're right. I mean, just just because of the quality of the two teams and the two managers, you would like to see that game, but with, with every other, like basically on an even setting with every condition right. So we see these two teams at their best. But this is also the nature of modern football. And this is one of the challenges that managers have to overcome. Yeah, yeah. For sure, the editor of another paper actually said to me, the other day, you know, he said, can we just stop giving managers airtime when they're complaining about the fixture schedule? Mm. They know this is why they get paid so much. This is, you know, the reason that they have all the money in their pocket yeah, yeah. is because of these broadcasting deals. The reason they have to play all these games is because of these broadcasting deals. And I think everyone gets that. Um, but at the same time, and it, I believe it is also very tiresome because every manager says it, you know, it's, mm. it's our, we have it worse than all the other clubs. We have it worse than all the other clubs. And, and one week it, it'll be... Arsenal have got it terrible. They've got like a Thursday, awful yeah. Thursday, Sunday schedule where they get back from Minsk and then they're playing against Brighton on a Sunday at midday mm-hmm. and they might think they've got it bad. Where Chelsea think they've got it bad. Jose always thinks he's got yeah. it bad, even if he had three weeks off. So I think these these coaches obviously do see it as an issue, but it's because they've got players going down with injuries and stuff all the time, which is... The and problem. if we were to make those changes that managers want, it would only serve to make... Um, you know, big team versus bad team in mm-hmm. the Premier League games, even worse than they already are. And they've yeah. been terrible this year. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's it, never any sense that the, the, the good team isn't going to win. And if suddenly you give the good team an extra 24 hours to prepare because they've just come back from uh, Carabag or wherever, yeah. then they're only going to be fresher and sharper. And uh, and we saw, uh, actually, we in, uh, on that, it'll be interesting to see by Christmas what the point return from the big six against the rest of the 14 is compared to previous seasons, actually. Because I think it was already up last year. Now, I think it, it kind of left a bit towards the end of the season, just with the nature of how seasons go. But, it, but yeah, it, it does feel like that gap is, is bigger than ever. Well, I mean, you have to be basically a really bad... So Man United are in Moscow on, mm. on what, Tuesday, Wednesday night. And you're kind of thinking, you know, it's a tough trip to do, and then you come back, and then obviously they vanquish Crystal Palace because they're the worst team in the league. But quite often... That's where we get these surprise results, where Watford take yeah, a point yeah. off someone or, or Stoke beat them or whatever. So I agree. Like It makes the Premier League more competitive that these top teams have to, to battle on two fronts. But um, it just, for me, slightly... Uh, it, it took... You know, I, I still think Guardiola's vision was, was there to see, which is probably the most important thing you can say, is that he's clearly transmitted mm-hmm. his message to the players and they really executed what he wants them to do uh, in terms of the, the way they were. Yeah, it's pinning Chelsea back. But th- I think this is a key as well, and it's something we've spoken on the podcast before, and in, in some of the pieces that you know, this Guardiola when, when he when he's coaching these teams, he they're not they're not just following what he wants them to do with the ball. They basically have to learn, a, you know, a spatial map of the pitch and and kind of gradually learn where to go in relation to the ball, in relation to other players. And that is that's that's quite a complex um, thing to learn. And uh, there was so many times last season heard it publicly and heard it privately as well where. I think he was frustrated that some players weren't picking it up or at the, at the, at the length of time it was taking to pick it up. Whereas you can see now, and I think this is a big a big issue in why their, um, their defensive record is so much better, but so many more players just understand that that, that map on a on a deeper level. And while we're talking about that, Fabian Delph, Jack, 
I know, yeah. So he played. Um, I think this was his third game of the season at left back. He wasn't really a. He wasn't really playing as a conventional left back either on Saturday. He was kind of. He was, you know, he was tucking into midfield when City had the ball, and he was really good. Like he can't. You know, he's not going to be able to do things that Mendy can do. Like he's not going to run down the line and whip in a first time cross. But he can, you know, he can defend re- reasonably well enough. Uh, he can get involved in midfield, which is ultimately is the most important thing to Pep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's looked really solid and he's been rewarded with a place in the England squad next week and one of the interesting things about Delph and um, I'm going to slightly reverse my previous position on on Guardiola here is that Guardiola has shown that he can improve and use a player who you would normally think isn't good enough to play for him Yeah, and that's been one of the big criticisms of Pep last season compared to say Conte or Pochettino or Klopp is that there's there's this kind of Pep does sometimes slightly give this impression that he can only work with brilliant players and that his solution to City not being good last year was to spend 230 million quid so for him to get this guy who clearly isn't really as good as the other players in the squad and find a way to make him useful and effective does suggest that you know maybe that criticism of Pep was a bit over overdone yeah he did praise the resilience of Delph as well after the game in the Mondays when he's kind of you know you have to say this guy like yeah he showed us it's something that's been like First of all, out of the team for so long. Secondly, when he finally gets back into the team, it's in a position he's never really played before. Although Guardiola did say they'd worked on it in training and went through drills with it. But then to adapt that successfully is, you know, credit to Delph. Well, it's, it's kind of, we've seen it increasingly over the last few seasons, if you think, uh, with, with some of the bigger clubs in Europe, where the skill set of a central midfielder, an, an energetic central midfielder mm. in particular, and I'm thinking James Milner at Liverpool, yeah. I'm thinking Sergio Roberto at Barcelona, yeah. who, was, who was just a central midfielder, that's mm. all he was, and then... Um, when Dani Alves uh, was injured first and then after he left, he became Barcelona's first choice mm. right back. And because if you've got a lot of the ball, then then having just someone who's got a, a solid technical skill set and is energetic mm. is often more important than having a, a right back who's really defensively minded and disciplined. And not that Mendy is, is that guy. Mendy obviously is going to help them in terms of stretching the field and providing more width. And I guess... Some of his balls as well, Mendy. Like the, the, the you like Mendy's balls. <laughs> uh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> long, like long, long term, long term. Mendy obviously is going to be better for you because he's going to stretch the field. Um, the quality of his delivery, should I say? <laughs> yes, there we go. Uh, but I think I think it's good because if you play Delph there long term, people will realise you know you can push him on the outside, and he might not necessarily have that consistent delivery uh, in the same way that others do. But it's still a, an extra ball player, you know. And do you remember at, at Bayern when he mm. was doing that thing where he played the fullbacks and they were darting into central yeah, midfield yeah. anyway? Actually, Walker was doing a bit of that on. Well, you, you picked Walker up on was that playing at centre back. Yeah, on Saturday. Um, so yeah, they had. I mean, effectively, so they he didn't was have going right to centre back. back. And who was? Yeah, so they had. It was basically a sort of lopsided three-four-three three with yeah. Walker playing at centre back with Otamendi and Stones. Mm-hmm. And then a midfield four, which had kind of Delph tucking in as left back, Fernandinho in front of the centre backs. Um, Silver pushed further forward and De Bruyne more towards the right. So they didn't really have a convent. So they didn't really have a right back in any meaningful sense. They didn't really have a left back, although Delph was closer to left back than anyone else. Um, so it was one of these strange kind of Guardiola lops- lopsided systems, but it did work well. It's interesting because City are currently considering whether or not it's worth spending big money on Danny Rose in January. They know they want a good new left back because they want to win the title and it's a very important position to them and they can't really count on Mendy until the end of the season. Um, and they know that you know, Danny Rose is very good and clearly would like to go to City. Um, but the problem is that you know he's got three and a half years left on his Tottenham contract. Tottenham would probably want the best part of £50 million for him. 
Uh, and City, you know, City couldn't really find the money to get Johnny Johnny Evans over the line at the end of the summer window. So I'd probably be surprised if they could find that money in January to get Rose. If they don't get Rose, they might look back at Ryan Bertrand, who's a player who they nearly signed in the summer, and they would have done if they'd been able to get other players in other positions. But even then, I think he's got four years left on his contract at Saints. Won't be cheap. So he's, yeah, he's going to cost upwards of 30 million quid anyway. So I think City are in a bit of a quandary, and it might be that if they think that Delph and Danilo can do well enough until Mendy gets back in, then they can get themselves out of having to spend big money. And also, if they did spend fifty million on Danny Rose, the next year they'd have Rose and Mendy. Yeah, yeah. I don't not really plausible. I don't think that's the worst. I don't think. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't personally do it at this point. I think it was Mendy or Rose, and then you get someone else. Like the most, the thing that makes most sense to me is if they went and got a young guy. You know, like a. Find, the next, to, yeah. find the next good young uh, full left back from somewhere who's like tw- max 21 years old and you bring him in and say like we're going to develop you we're going to make you into a really good player under Guardiola like it's a, it's a promising sort of situation to be in for the player but also you're going to get some regular football I think if they want to win the Champions League which they really could do you know I they're, think, yeah, I think they're the best place of all the English teams for me to win the Champions League this year then they need to have a, someone there who's, who can properly do the, play the position and if Mendy is really out for the whole season, then that's uh, obviously a desperate shame. But also, it does suggest to me that you, at some point you're going to get found out with Delph and Danilo at, at left back. And I think that's probably when you come up against Real Madrid or or Barcelona or, mm. or PSG even, um, at this rate. But it is a shame that the Mendy thing, for that reason, I think that they do look like they could be that club out of all the English clubs who could go really deep. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And I also don't think that, um, well, we've seen with Bayern, we've seen with Barcelona's issues, that the the top level, the, the super, or the, the, the really elite super clubs aren't quite as strong as they were. Bar Madrid, who kind of started the season poorly, but their squad is so good. So, yeah. Well, Madrid have slightly underperformed, um, but Barcelona's results have been good, but if you've watched the games, yeah. they've not been that good. I mean, it's just having a superhuman guy in Messi. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I haven't seen much of Bayern, but from what I gather, they've They're been pretty dreadful. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. If City are in the mix oh, for the Premier League and the Champions League in March, where do you think Pep would prioritise? This is an interesting one. Uh, I'd say... Li- oh, so much pressure on him to, because he hasn't... You know, he has to win the league at some point. Yeah. I don't think he can afford not to win the Premier League. I think, he, I, 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 uh, I, th- I think he'd almost going to prioritise the league and see the Champions League as a bonus, but... He's spent way too much money to not win the Premier I, League. I, I actually think they could be a fair bit in front at that point. Yeah, I think that there's always the possibility with with this team. Like, uh, it's it's almost as likely as likely as it is that they could be rubbish. Mm. It's as likely that they could get a hundred points mm. and kill the league if they really if they really um, 
if they keep playing like they, they have done for the last sort of three or four weeks. I mean, I, I think with Chelsea at their best, in a very in a very different way, in a different style of football, they can almost be as good as City, but City have so much more depth than they do, which is why I think that they'll. Well, yeah, but I mean, so it's what we were saying earlier about Chelsea and the, the squad not having enough depth. Mm. So, if if Chelsea had to completely rotate their front three, it goes from being. Morata, Hazard, and who would you have on the? Who would you want on the other side? It's, I like Pedro. Or so. Pedro, yeah. So then the backup three would become Bashway. Michi, uh, Willian, or Pedro, yeah. whichever one you've left out. And then on the left, you go with. Yeah, <laughs> they can shuffle around, and play Sesk maybe as a ten. Yeah, Jeremy Boga. Yeah. Whereas, wait, wait. whereas if you look at City's depth yeah. in those attacking midfield areas, my God. And, and I think with City then as well, it's not just they can change the personnel. It's that Guardiola can completely change the makeup of how that front that, how that attack moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much like he's got multifaceted options. Well, and that's the thing. It's like whether they play the back four, or the mm. back three, or whatever. I, I feel like they they do have a lot. It, it's it's going to hinge on the on the defense, especially when they get to the last stage of the Champions League if they can hold out, because some of these attacks they're going to come up against are mm. elite. And if you're looking in the Premier League, actually at the moment there aren't too many, you know, you've had your say on Manchester United's attack several times in mm. terms of, and I know they're currently plundering goals at a really ridiculous rate and yeah. Mourinho's keeping clean sheets, so it's it's going well. But there's no team that's really blistering in attack except City themselves, maybe, Jack. Yeah, I mean, I think we were... At the start of the season, I thought that this, you know, the second best attack behind City would be Liverpool's. Yeah, yeah. And yet they've been really bad. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not worked at all. Oh yeah, no, we, we, I kind of forgot Liverpool on that day. Liverpool, yeah, can be. I, I, I think it will. I think Liverpool will click. Although Klopp is getting quite tetchy, which usually is a sign. That's more than kind of just well, I, that that points to more than kind of this this patience. All right, eventually will click right. It does hint that maybe he's kind of frustrated at something. Of course, we we also have as um. As Pep put it on Saturday, the Harry Kane team. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> Tottenham's attacking play at times in the last few weeks, like their the second, particularly the the second goal they scored on Saturday yeah. was brilliant. And they, I was at the West Ham game where they won three two. It was quite an Tottenham goal, I thought as well. In terms of just the elaboration, the kind of the movement, was you, you, they're usually much more direct than that when they're at their best. Yeah, maybe. Although equally, every pass was still forward. Yeah. Um, but I mean, th- they are the. They are clearly the second, or not not clearly, but I think they're probably the second best attacking team in the country behind City at the moment. Not like because of Kane and also because mm. of Ericsson yeah. and, and the, ho- the like. The, the benefit that you have for having a team which has been in development for years mm. and where they have that kind of like in- intuitive trust and understanding with each other, yeah, which is really what elevates That's the top a consist- team. A consistency of coaching and stuff. Like, oh, is it? To be fair, if, if, if Tottenham finished top three again, that is actually another. Given what everyone else has done, that is another remarkable achievement. Well, Harry Kane is playing at a level uh, which is beyond any England striker since, I guess, Pete Rooney, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, Rooney, actually. Uh, Pete Rooney, I mean, that's very unfair of me. (laughs) Pete Rooney won the Champions League. Although Rooney was different, though, even like, and when he won the Champions League, he he, he wasn't quite the goal machine, whereas. And I, there was, I think there was much more to Rooney's game. I, think, I do think Rooney at his best was a more talented player than Kane. But in terms of pure goals, no, I, no. I, I think Kane is the best. He's more sure reminiscent, yeah. I'm sure. I think Kane could be heading for a, um, you know, like a, a Suarez-Ronaldo-style 30-plus mm. goal season this year. And it's actually because of... I mean, I've, I've changed my prediction the last week or two because, basically because of how well Kane's playing from, you know, from Liverpool get top four and Spurs will be mm. fifth. And now I think that Spurs yeah, will finish yeah. ahead of Liverpool. And we'll probably be up there close to Manchester United and Chelsea. Yeah. Liverpool just have this tendency. They can always drop a bollock at any second. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, 
almost they're just such a it, it, I don't know how how you describe it. It's like a, a house of cards that's it can be really impressive, but it is always just like one tiny thing away yeah. from just collapse. Um, and the performance, the simplicity of that goal I conceded yesterday was just laughable. I mean, <laughs> Shelby, yeah. Shelby, I mean, it was a, it was a, Shelby executed the pass very well, but there was so much space to make it. I mean, that it didn't need to be perfect. I know it, it's easy to say Rafa worked them out, but like this happens against a lot of lower half teams. Mm. Uh, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. Like Rafa, when was Rafa? When did Rafa leave? Was uh, it 2009? 2010. 2000, I mean, so like seven years ago, and he, mm. what, he's got all the secrets still? I don't know. Like, <laughs> is, uh, that, is anyone actually still left from the rap? Yeah, there? no, it, it, it kind of, it's an easy narrative to make, but I do believe that the fundamentally is just another side from the bottom half, away from home, yeah. that Liverpool just dropped points again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose the, the one in, in relation to that, that Benitez ultimately, he's a very kind of system first, organisation, defensive organisation first, co- or a control coach. Um, so he is. It's it's not necessarily that he he was well placed to work out Liverpool because they're a former club, but just in terms of being a bottom fourteen team, uh, that or he has exactly the type of organisation that Liverpool struggle against. And also, and Liverpool basically because of the way they made up, they thrive in these games where there's actually little structure. Mm. But if the game's going end to end, that's a game Liverpool can win. Yeah, yeah. Because they can hit you so hard on the break, and we saw that a couple of weeks ago. That you know, against a, even a good team, a good team that's going to come out and attack mm. them. They can really do things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, teams that sit deep against them, uh, you're hoping Coutinho is going to kind of pull something out, or, yeah. or Sadio Mane has to beat a man and, and kind of break that line. It's not a very encouraging sign, is it, that Liverpool, li- basically Liverpool can't impose themselves on a the game. No, yeah, yeah. They're reliant on the other team playing a way which is convenient to them mm. for them to be effective. And, and, I, and, and that's so, that's, that is so different from even even Mourinho's United. Yeah. I think can take control of a game better than Liverpool can. And I think if you were now playing, if you're playing one of those top six games, the solution is actually probably against Liverpool. The solution is probably the Mourinho solution. Well, we're not going to play into your hands. We'll just sit sit, sit tight and frustrate you. And I, and which United did twice last season. Well, more so in the uh, in the first game that was so built up that the Red Monday one. Yeah, and well, you know, Klopp's been there for two years mm. now, and he doesn't seem to have a solution to that. Yeah. Uh, also, the one, the one thing about Liverpool, as I have to say, I mean, S- Salah's been kind of so um, praised this season, but I think he's still one of the most frustrating players in the league. He, do, he does it exactly. This is exactly what we said in pre-season. Though. Yeah. And this is the same guy in that. And I, I always bring it back to that game because uh, just because of both legs. The Real Madrid-Roma mm-hmm. uh, quarterfinal of the Champions League when he had probably six or seven one-on-ones over the two legs and Roma didn't score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always gets in the best position. Was that last season? No, the season it's before. Right, season yeah. before. I can't believe a player can get in so many good positions. Yeah. And and I know that if you look at his record at Roma, he gets a lot of goals and assists. Fine, mm. great. Again, Sassuolo or whatever. But the point is that we've seen it at Liverpool. Again, he's he, he's still doing it where he gets in these unbelievable positions and the chances go to waste. Well, it, well yes. It, 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 that moment actually just comes to sum them up. First of all, there was a brilliant pass through to, Sa- or to Sadio Mane. And then within seconds, he somehow fluffs that chance that, that after Mane set him up. If he'd scored, if Salah had scored one of those, I think he had two good chances mm. at City in the game early September, which City won five nil. Mm. Then you know Liverpool could very possibly I, I, be top now, and City, God knows where they'd be. And with both of those, it was as if it was genuinely as if he was afraid to just hit the ball. Mm. Like they, they were kind of, they were so kind of, it was so fragile the way the way he even. He uh, but it, it. it's just amazing for me that they always they look all the same. Like it, it's mm. always in that same zone and. Uh, against Real Madrid, mm. that gap between Marcelo and Sergio Ramos, he just tore it just yeah, every yeah. single time. So he's in in the area, it's on his right foot, just clip it or dink it or smash yeah, it, do yeah, whatever yeah. you want. But every time it was the same, every time it was the same result. 
and in the end it cost his team because mm. they're the, they're the only chances they create or gain but they're such good chances yeah, yeah. in the area one on one with the goalkeeper you have to be able to finish that um, and we thought you know obviously Liverpool's defence is going to be a problem but this is an that's an attacking issue as well yeah yeah especially because it's you know they've played they've paid kind of blue chip money for a mm. guy who isn't really providing that well that's I, I I saw I saw a discussion on Twitter yesterday between a few of our colleagues about how Liverpool's XG is, is really good and actually it'll eventually come right. But then this is actually specifically the issue because he's getting into positions that would be kind of... <laughs> and also, you know, it's the same with the expected goals thing, which, you know, I, th- I, can, I absolutely see the use for, for it as a metric. Yeah. But if you look at Barcelona, for example, Barcelona's XG this season has been pretty pathetic. Like, they're, uh, kind of, there are games when they're like, kind of supposed to, like, their XG victory would be like 1-0, but mm. they're winning 3-0 because they've got a superhuman finisher. You've yeah. got a guy who gets into positions where he's not expected to score and scores goals. Mm. You know, that that is basically you've got a really good finisher, they're gonna be performing above that XG yeah. level. Whereas basically with someone like Mohamed Salah, I mean I am probably gonna get proven wrong by this because I'm sure his numbers <laughs> aren't that. But he gets in these great positions yeah. where they are where you are expected to score and then doesn't. Yeah. Well I suppose it's not just about the position, it's also because of his pace, it's a, it's a, like there's he seems to always be in a position then where suddenly there aren't too many defenders around him, so he's free, or he should be free, to hit the ball as kind of you know, as uh, in his cam uh, in, in the manner he wants. Yeah, but he doesn't. He always seems to fluff at it. Uh, on, a, on a slight tangent, but marginally related note, Suarez looks a little bit. I don't, I don't want to say past it, but Luis Suarez. I, I'd be yeah, I'd be slightly concerned now. Uh, well, I mean, if, if you want to talk Barcelona, actually, I think we should talk Barcelona. Mm. Um, I think they were one of the biggest stories of the weekend, really. Um, and it's good that I thought I think it was nice that Pep touched on it on, on Saturday. Uh, he, 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 he was asked about it a few times, actually. First of all, uh, a, f- a friend of mine who works for one of the Spanish Wires maybe asked him a slightly, a slightly cheeky question about whether he'd ever managed Spain, uh, not knowing full well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guardiola's um, in- intentions. Famously, he wanted to manage Brazil, if you remember. Well, funny enough, then, once the whole issue of international management came up, he was asked, I, oh, I was put him, I have to ask you now, would you ever consider managing England? And he goes, no, I, I'm a strong believer that um, with national teams, uh, an Englishman should manage England and a Brazilian should manage Brazil. Um, it's actually a rare point of agreement between Guardiola and Jose Mourinho. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the, Jose Mourinho, you know, he's made it quite clear that one day he'd like to manage Portugal. And he was asked about what his Portugal team would be like. And he said that he wouldn't want too many players who weren't from other countries apart from Portugal, only if they had like a very close family d- d- connection d- d- with, with Portugal. There was a specific quote, wasn't there? There was a specific <laughs> quote. He said, it's Portugal, not Portugal and friends. Well, but this is the guy who, uh, I mean, like had a great time with Deco. You know, Deco was in you know, his Porto team. Well, Deco, he got Deco into his Brazilian, the Portuguese team. And he got yeah. him into the Portuguese yeah. team himself. But... Uh, <laughs> If you are interested in this, by the way, uh, just to take a slight uh, detour, because this is the detour podcast, it seems, this week. Um, next week, we're having a podcast on how to fix international football. Um, if you don't think it's broken, you haven't been paying attention. Um, and uh, some of these themes are going to come up, and there's going to be a series of, of four or five pieces over the next week. Uh, each writer taking a different idea on how to fix international football. And that we're going to be a podcast next Monday discussing it. Or, Miguel, you'll be in Lithuania, I believe. I will be in Vilnius, but, yeah. Um, I will uh, take over That's your It's going to be a momentous game, has he? <laughs> no, 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 it's the big one in Vilnius. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I do want to touch on Barcelona um, because I do think it was, I think it was important. Um, first of all, I think uh, the game should never have been played yesterday. Are we in agreement? Or do you, you, you want to know if you think uh, it yeah, should have gone ahead? Well, I mean, in that kind of... Well, 
I think with everything that had gone on in the morning, when there's videos of, of policemen brutally kicking the crap out of old yeah. people, basically, and, and, and all the stuff across the region of Catalonia that was going on, um, to ask the police to police, to, to for want of a better yeah. verb, a 100,000 capacity stadium mm. and a game. Now, obviously, they thought uh, the way around this was to play it behind closed doors. Uh, something of the play... Well, from Gerard Piquet's quotes after the game, uh, he said that basically the dressing room was split. There were people who mm. wanted to play the game. There were people who really didn't want to play yeah, the game. Th- this is, again, another tangent. I, I was quite... In the middle of all this, one thing I was thinking about is... <laughs> in such a heavily politicised situation that does relate to where you live and possibly the future status of where you live, I was curious as to what Barca's international players actually think of the situation, what way they'd align, especially because I suppose many of them them come from Spanish-speaking countries and, you know, if independence was to happen, obviously we'd become... It would be a a Catalan-speaking country. Well, Iniesta is a very big symbol of... FC Barcelona, yeah, and yet, yeah. but he from is Albacete. from Albacete, yeah. yeah. So, so he is a, a Castilian Spanish guy mm. who is a, kind of a symbol of this great Catalan institution. Yeah. But you know, he's he's not eligible to play for Catalonia yeah. or anyone like that. So, it is say, I, I did wonder how he, how someone like him, would have felt wearing the uh, the Senera shirt, the, uh, the, one, the when they came out at the start of the game and they wore they wore that, that jersey that, that is the Catalan flag. Yeah, no, I I think it's. I mean, it's a very complex issue, and. and the, one of the the interesting things is is the, the demographics and mm. how different people feel about it. And my feeling is that the political class in Madrid, they're all kind of 60, 70-year-old white yeah, men yeah. who grew up in, in fascist-era yeah, Spain. And they what they see as normal is very different to Compl- what... The, yeah. And you've got a young generation who are kind of our age who have grown up um, at a time when Spain is, is a modern nation yeah. as part of the EU with like huge immigration. It's a... It's a wonderful country to, to live in, etc. And it's their view on life, and as we've seen with Pol- mm. the rise of Podemos, the political party, is, is it's a very different country for these two groups yeah, of people. Completely, yeah, completely, uh, yeah. And I also, I mean, there was a lot made of the um, the chant then, the Viva Spania chant during uh, Madrid's game. But I think there was also, uh, the point was made last night, I saw a few times, uh, yes, there were people kind of, and I did see on, on social media and everything, and even I'm half Spanish myself, and even people I know from Spain and on Facebook and the like, you know, there was this kind of bullish attitude that we, the, the Guardia Seville don't have to explain anything to these traitors, this, all this sort of stuff. But on the other side, there was the younger generation actually showing kind of, who would be, I suppose, pro-Spanish or, you know, identify Spanish, but yet showing solidarity to Catalans in this situation. And obviously, we had the kind of barbaric response of the, uh, of yeah. the Spanish authorities. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll, we'll save the, the in-depth politics mm. for another, uh, another podcast, Indie Football Politics, coming uh, <laughs> September 2018. Um, but... With PK, uh, who is the biggest, most obvious mm. example, this is a guy who already, whilst playing for Spain, is jeered yeah, yeah. and has been jeered uh, at grounds around Spain, really, for for uh, originally, really, basically because of a Twitter spat with Real Madrid and things like that. You yeah, know, it, yeah. it's not. It, it is rooted in the nationalism. It is rooted in the Real Madrid Castilian thing against the Barcelona Catalan thing because that's where the rivalry comes from mm. uh, in a large part as well as a success. But Piquet this week has to go off with Spain. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said after the game last night, he said it was the most difficult game he's ever had to play. He said, uh, you know, he, he rightly criticised um, the treatment of people at the voting stations and stuff. But he also said, you know, if 
if they think if the coach and the captain think I can't play for the Spanish national team if they think it's going to be mm. a problem then no, I've got no problems I'll quit and that is when it starts to really leak into yeah, you yeah. know sport and politics don't mix but like they never well, like, that, yeah, that, that's, that's actually that, no, that, that's a phrase I, no, I know you're not saying it but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you see that phrase a lot around these sort of times I mean it's actually one of the stupidest things I've ever heard yeah <laughs> genuinely because I mean they, they, they just they, they, they will mix whether you want it or not I mean, but unfortunately, politics mixes with everything, yeah. you know, and it's just uh, what you got to deal with. And and on this occasion, if you're looking at it from a pure sporting point of view, mm. so you you don't you don't care about the politics, you don't care yeah. about anything else. It's I'm Spanish and I want Spain to win the World Cup next year. They are worse off without Gerard yeah, yeah. Piquet in the team. So if this causes Gerard Piquet to be unable for sele- uh, unavailable for selection, now I don't th- I don't think it will come to no, that because no. that Spain team loves him. Yeah, and and Lopetegui likes him as well. Like Lopetegui loves him. Uh, you know, he's. But the problem is, you know, he was already getting jeered before mm. this. He's now almost like the poster boy for the Catalan nationalism within football. Yeah, yeah. He was pictured voting in the uh, referendum, which was deemed well, illegal uh, by Madrid. Uh, funnily enough, I think he's uh, he's also been quite strident about the fact that, and when he's really when he's really put on the spot about it, it's uh, it's not that I'm in favour of Catalan independence. It's Absolutely. that I'm in favour of the choice to have the choice. Yeah. He, he, even though you would this is possibly being unfair on him but you would just from the way he talks about it you would you would think is that, that how Pep tried to frame it on Saturday yeah that's how Pep tried to frame it well although Pep, Pep's been much more strident about independence and even there's that fight well, when when Barcelona finally won their first um, European Cup in 1992 Pep referenced a, fam- a famous in, in literally presenting the trophy to the crowd Pep referenced a famous ca- poem about Catalan nationalism and independence so I think he's much uh Pep's he's much more dialed in on that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, PK, yeah, he he's been like you know, uh, votarim was the, yeah. the Catalan word. You know, we're going to go out and vote, and and that's what he wants to do. Is is he wants to make out that it, it's all about the voting rather mm. than necessarily the independence. But he is. Um, I'm writing a piece on this today. He is actually not a normal footballer in any way. Yeah, yeah. This is like is a guy who runs a computer games company. Yeah, yeah. He goes out for dinner with Mark Zuckerberg. He went out for dinner with um, the president of Rakuten, which is mm. the biggest online merchant uh, in the world, I think, behind Alibaba, the Japanese company. Yeah. And he set up the sponsorship deal with Barcelona and Rakuten, which yeah, is yeah. the biggest sponsorship deal, I believe, in football. So this isn't a normal guy. Like he, he's He'll be president of Barcelona at some point. Well, so <laughs> I asked someone who knows him very well about that, and, and they said, basically, no, he's got much bigger oh, ambitions. Yeah, yeah. Much bigger ambitions well, than being president, president of Barcelona. Yeah. Well, oh God, don't even don't even start on that. But possibly, uh, you know, this is a guy who has, yeah. has bigger ambitions than being president of Barcelona. Because being president of Barcelona, to be honest, sounds like a terrible job well, in terms yeah. of <laughs> the political infighting yeah. and stuff you have to deal with. Bartomeu, under even more pressure, you know, nothing he can do can do right. The I believe the director of institutional relations resigned mm-hmm. uh, this week. I th- if I remember correctly, remember the last guy who suggested that was it? He suggested Messi. Oh yeah, yeah, the contract will yeah, yeah. go, and then they they sacked him the next Couldn't day. We, or did he have to headline that whether Messi's the best player in the world or something like that? It was it was something yeah, no, very, it was something very mild. Was, yeah, it was when it was very tense about whether he was going to sign mm. the deal. Uh, he was binned. New guy comes in, and it seems to be basically that he completely did not think they should play this game. Mm. And he's in charge with their relations with uh, La Liga and Las Palmas, obviously. And La Liga and Las Palmas were both insistent that they wanted to to play this game. Mm-hmm. La Liga, of course, the head of La Liga is Javier Tebas, who uh, is a, a very right-wing individual who was part of one of the hard right groups in, yeah. in, the, in the 70s and 80s. So he 
is very much a, a Castilian nationalist and, and wasn't about to let Barcelona off, basically. And Barcelona, they had a decision. You either forfeit the game and lose 3-0, lose three points for for a cause. Mm-hmm. But the players, I think, obviously, they fight hard over a season. And in the league, quite often, three points is the difference between yeah, yeah. winning the title and not. Um, but on a purely footballing note, I think... Any game where there are 99,000 empty seats when Lionel Messi's playing, now he's past 30, mm. is a disgrace because everyone should be able to see yeah, this yeah. guy before he well, retires. On a very, very base level, I suppose. I, think, I mean, Barcelona are probably one of those clubs in the world that attract, because of the size of the stadium and because of the location, they probably attract more kind of visiting fans just there, there for the weekend. Oh, I finally get to see Barcelona. Can you, can you imagine if you made a trip just for that and for it to be... Indeed, Andy Mitten. I uh, saw that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you saw that, yeah. So he, he said there were, there were three people who'd planned this trip for months because they wanted to come over and see Neymar. Mm. So obviously you're not getting to see Neymar, but at least you're coming over. You get to see Messi and stuff. And then for the game to actually go ahead, yeah, that, Messi that's exactly yeah, no, no, yeah, Yeah, because I mean, not that I'm agreeing with the uh, idea that it, it shouldn't be postponed because it, I, think, I think it probably should have been postponed. Yeah. But yeah, but that's it. For the game to go ahead and not... Um, Miguel, what do you think about the intervention of your hero, Javi Hernandez? <laughs> um, it was just... Uh, Javi Hernandez uh, from Qatar said that it's important that people respect democracy. Yeah. Is, that's correct. Right? Actually, uh, even Xavi Z- himself um, is quite an interesting case in all this because his ne- I think his father is not a Catalan. I think I'm right in saying. I think he's from somewhere in Spain. But even his name is Xavi Cruz Hernandez in terms of that. It's half Catalan, half Spanish. And I, I think that is... I mean, pe- people see the whole Catalan idea, and even in terms of Barcelona, they, they see it's kind of a monolithic Catalan block, whereas it's actually much more stratified than, pe- than people... And that, that's why even this referendum, I think, initially before all the trouble, it was expected to be much closer than it would have been. And Xavi's quite similar. Although in saying that, I think a lot more of the younger generation are much more, and, and those who are half Spanish, half Catalan, are more, if they've grown up in Catalonia, they're much more Catalan-minded. Um, but I think that's quite a recent phenomenon. When I, when I, my mother's from very cl- uh, right beside the Basque region, we're from Navarra. Um, and when I, when I was growing up, though, and we were over in the 90s, Basque nationalism was a much, much stronger, stronger thing than Catalan nationalism. Sure, yeah. And, and it's become, and, and even in, in football, you know, you've noticed it much more in the last 10, 15 years as well. I, th- I think... Um it's just one of those situations where, unfortunately, the the politics of the situation, and also the way the Spanish government have dealt with it, has been terrible, mm. and it's only furthered their cause. But there are lots of people with split nationalities, and one of the, the best videos that came out uh, on Sunday was a guy wrapped in a Spanish flag yeah. who went to vote in the referendum, because that's actually the point, is that it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. which way you vote, like, the fact that they didn't respect the process it, itself... Um, I think that's probably a point we should wrap when we're talking about democratic processes. Um, but I'd like to thank you both for coming today. Thank you. Um, next week, we, as I say, we'll be discussing international football and how to fix it. Um, we will have uh, our new chief sports writer, Jonathan Liu, uh, on the show. Uh, Jack will be joining me as well, I believe. Miguel, as I said, is in Lithuania. Um, be careful. Uh, be safe. Uh, but until then, I guess uh, all I need to do is to say thanks to both of you. Uh, thanks to Matt Murphy, our producer. Thanks to our friends at Acast to thanks help to Ed. sort the technical stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, definitely thanks to me Back. because I hold it all together. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, that'll do it for today. Uh, thank you and goodbye.